Good morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for the example and for the work of Jesus, for the, the access into your presence that he has made for us, but also for the way of living in this world that he has set us free to pursue. Lord, help us to see that in your word this morning. I pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So one of the things that seems to be getting tossed around a lot this election cycle, isn't it fun to be in an election cycle, <laughs> is unity. So there's a sense going around, whether it's right or wrong, that we used to be a lot more united than we are now. So that could be either more united as Americans, could be more united in our communities, even more united in our families in general. There's this sense that there's a sort of unity that we used to have, now we don't have it so much anymore. There's even a sense in which our fractures have fractured. So like Republicans and Democrats can't get along with themselves, right? Even those places where we're divided are even further divided. So even the institutions that are even at the very like, bedrock of our society, college sports conferences, even they're breaking down. Yeah, can you imagine? Where do we go? Not so much interested in parsing out fact from fiction there, as much as I am in actually pointing out one of the really tricky things about unity. Because we actually need to see that to be able to see how Paul confronts it in Philippians 2. I think we all know that unity isn't just something that we can conjure up, right? It's not just something that we can make. And that makes sense if we stop and think about where we assume that unity comes from. So, for example, we might assume unity comes from shared beliefs. Well, that's too bad because we don't agree with each other, and we can't just instantly fix that. Shared identities, that's gone too bad too many times. Shared goals, we all want different things. And for the most part, maybe as cynical as this sounds, usually it seems like when we say, let's be unified, what we actually mean is, well, let's all agree with me, or let's all pursue the same thing that I want to pursue, or that we want to pursue. The prevailing sense, at least, that I get when I hear us talk about unity is not so much that we want to be together, it's more that we just want everyone else to join us. We want everyone else to be on the same page as me. We want unity, but we seem to want it on our terms. You might hear that and think, okay, that is really cynical. It's not all that bad. And maybe, in a sense, you are right. Because there are some ways that actually I think we can see echoes of what Paul is saying and echoes of Jesus' teaching that do play out in our world sometimes. But what I want us to do today is actually talk about how Paul confronts unity in Philippians 2. And we're also going to talk, though, about how this unity, the way that Paul talks about it, is available in the life of the church, in the body of Christ, in a way that it is not available anywhere else. We're going to see why unity in that real sense is actually something that the world can only copy or imitate, but that there is something that's even greater that is given to us that we can't get anywhere else. So in Philippians, it actually turns out that unity is one of the central themes. So if you read chapter 1, 
Paul's grateful for this unity that he has with the Philippians because they are together in the gospel and they're sharing the same mission. Later in Philippians, he wants them to live lives that show that unity or that reflect it. Later in chapter 2, he wants them to imitate people who are going to set the example for that unity. Later in chapter 3, he's going to want them to lay everything aside so that they can pursue Christ together. Later in chapter 4, he's going to want unity so that they can endure and even suffer, but do it together. And so throughout Philippians, Paul is talking very specifically about unity within the church, within the body of Christ. But this is also obviously something that we do long for. That's why we talk about it so much. We want unity in places like our communities or in our families or in our friendships, and then we want it to spill out from those places into the, the kind of the wider world, right? Because it goes without saying that there is a peace and a goodness, a real flourishing that's found in that harmony that we can't have otherwise. That's why we want it. So for Paul, where does this unity come from? It's interesting to see the things that he doesn't start with, maybe the things that we would assume. He doesn't start with believing the same things, even though that actually does matter, right? We talk about unity in the gospel. It's not from having a shared enemy. That seems to be a lot of times where we find unity. It's not that we're actually together. It's just that we're not those people. That's not how Paul does it. For Paul, the way into unity is found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. For Paul, the doorway into real unity is humility. So I want us to talk about that today. And I want us to see three different levels to that humility that we can see in this passage. We're going to need to see all three for us to really understand what Paul is doing. And so let's start with just the surface, the kind of top level. Paul talks about humility here, like we just said. It's counting others more significant than yourselves. Looking not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, that's not a comprehensive definition of humility. We're just on the surface. But even right there on the face of it, it's pretty easy to see why that would be easier said than done. For one, I don't want to. But even if I did, can you see how this might actually not work in our world? How exposed it would leave us? So if I'm looking out for my own interests, then who is looking out for mine? This humility thing is actually only going to work if everyone does it. If it's just me, if I'm looking out for other people's interests but not my own, then who's taking care of me? Who's looking out for me? If it's just me being humble in this world, then I'm going to get crushed. I'm going to get left behind. So never mind the fact that I actually love me and would love to have love and honor and glory and money and power and all of those other things. Never mind the fact that I want to make a big deal out of myself. Even if I were to figure out how to put those things to the side, it's actually hard to see how humility could work in our world. I actually get the same kind of squirmy feelings about that that I get from reading the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Because Jesus there says things that are really weird and that don't make sense in our world. Like, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
if I do that, I'm going to get pulverized. I don't want to. Or if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. So let's just freeze and die. Or if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. That sounds like trying to run with my wife. I can't do it. None of this stuff actually works in the world's economy. It's all stuff that just leaves us vulnerable. If we did it, people would just take our stuff. We would just get crushed. In our world, humility is not safe. It's dangerous. And that doesn't mean that we're not called to it. That's just how it is. I think Paul knows that. And so that's why Paul has another level underneath it. This humility that he calls the Philippians to is actually attached to something that is strong. Let's see what Paul is building it on. So verse 5, Paul says, have the same mind that Jesus has. Paul's vision of humility is actually built on Jesus' example. So let's look at the ways, Philippians 2, that Jesus lowered himself. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We could burn a lot of time talking about what that could mean, and we could also spend a lot of time talking about how people have gotten confused about it and kind of goofed it up. But I want to settle on the clear part because that's actually where the meat is. So Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the one by whom and in whom all things were made, he is actually not quarantined by his own holiness or by his greatness or by his power or by the sheer weight of his glory. This is actually how far his greatness goes. It is so unchallenged and so unparalleled and so unthreatened that he could take a human nature into himself and live among nasty human sinner people and not be affected by it. It doesn't diminish his greatness one bit. So think about that. Jesus' greatness is actually on display in leaving the throne room of God to live a life in the same world that invented Nickelback and MySpace. His greatness is on display not just in big acts of power, but in taking the form of a servant. It's a greatness that's on display in obedience, submission to the will of the Father, not swagger or authority. And it's on display all the way to the most disgraceful and shameful kind of death that the ancient world could imagine, death on a cross. This is the sort of greatness that Jesus actually talked about with his disciples a lot of times. So his disciples would come up to him and ask questions like, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus would confuse them with an answer like, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Or in one of the strangest episodes of parenting we see in the Bible, when James and John's mom comes to Jesus and asks, let these two sons of mine sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in, in the kingdom, right? asking for this absurdly high place of honor. Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now again, when you hear those with sort of our world's ears, you hear, well, that sounds great, Jesus, but I'm going to get crushed if I do those things. And actually, Jesus got crushed, so it actually all checks out. 
when you see the example that he set. But then we see in Philippians 2, God's response to that humility. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Therefore. So it's actually because Jesus didn't wield that greatness for his own glory. It's actually because he didn't exalt himself. Because instead he was obedient in the most humiliating ways all the way to death. Because of those things, God exalted him. God glorified him. God confirmed Jesus' greatness to the angels, to the demons, to all the heavenly beings, to everyone on earth, to all of creation. And he did it by raising him from the dead and proclaiming him as Lord. And by making it clear that everyone else should call him Lord too. Now think about that. You might hear that and say, well, big whoop, Jesus is God. And so he went through something really weird and wonky for a blip in eternity, but then he just went back and took his chair. He just took something back that belonged to him. Not a big deal. Well, here's the remarkable thing about that. It's not just that Jesus sort of snapped back into his rightful place, like he just got up for a cup of coffee and then just sat back down in his own chair. The remarkable thing is that God exalted him while Jesus still had all of the marks of shame and disgrace on him. So it's not remarkable that the Son of God was exalted, because of course he was. But what's remarkable is that this exaltation happens to God who has taken flesh. It happens to one who still has this human nature, who has not discarded it. It's remarkable that this exaltation is for a man. God made flesh. With the holes in his hands and in his feet, that show how far his humility actually stretched. That kind of greatness, that kind of exaltation is not threatened by the shame and the disgrace that he received from us. It's actually amplified. The perfect, holy son of God's greatness is actually on display in humility, and it's confirmed in this exaltation above every other name. And the Son of God bearing a human nature, and God still exalts him. That's the example that Paul's call to humility is built on. And that brings us to the deepest level of humility that Paul shows us here. That exaltation of Jesus, including his humanity. Yeah, there's actually a level here that's even deeper than Jesus' example. And we actually desperately need it. Why do I say that? Because as powerful as Jesus' example is, Jesus' example on its own actually doesn't move the needle for us at all. So it is truly a great example, but that's actually the problem because I can't match it. You can't match it. We are all way too afraid of being crushed or being vulnerable to match the level of humility that Jesus shows. There's a level of obedience here, and there's a level of true greatness that we don't have. And so where's the hope for us? Well, that third level, that lowest level that we need to see is actually in just three short words that Paul gives us in verse five. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus is as loaded a three-word phrase as Paul will ever give us. Because to be in Christ Jesus 
is to be crucified with Christ. It's to share in his death so that you can share in his resurrection. It's to be joined together with him as one body with Jesus as the head. That's the way Paul talks about it. It's to be united to him, really united to him, so that everything that is given to him can also be given to us. So for Paul, humility is not just the way into unity. Humility is the way of salvation. But it's not our humility that brings it. We don't receive a place in that kingdom that Jesus talked about by pumping up our own humility, if we were even able to do that. Because that's not where greatness comes from for us. It's by being joined to Jesus' humility. It's by sharing in what the world sees as his shame and disgrace. Because when we share in that, we can also share in his resurrection and exaltation. His humility is our entryway into this kingdom. It's only by being joined to him that we can receive that. And in that kingdom, now we're actually free to imitate him, to follow that example in a way that we wouldn't be otherwise. In Jesus' kingdom, we're actually brought into a greatness that cannot be threatened. We're given a security that we can't lose. So we can actually lower ourselves. We can even allow ourselves to be mistreated. We can even allow others to scorn us and to ridicule us. We can even stop looking after our own interests and trying to build our own little kingdoms and empires because we've actually been brought to a place where we cannot be threatened either, just like Jesus can't. And it's because nothing that is given in Christ can be taken from us. That's the beauty of this. So I want us to see what that actually looks like in the most important places. Think about your family. Jesus has actually given you the freedom to love and to serve your husband, your wife, your needy sibling, the parent that frustrates you, that member of your family that has hurt you. Jesus has actually given you the freedom to lower yourself and to serve and to love that person without fear of being crushed. Single people, you actually have the most brilliant chance to show Jesus' character clearly because Jesus lowered himself to serve people who had no claim on him. And the invitation is for you to do the same thing. You're free to do that. Think about life in your workplace or in your school. When you choose to lower yourself or to serve instead of constantly trying to climb the ladder or to pass others or to build your own little kingdom there, you have the chance to show Jesus' character. And when you do that, your life is actually saying that greatness in the kingdom of heaven, that greatness that can't be threatened, is better than anything that you could sort of scratch and claw and grasp for yourself. So this call to humility might feel like it's an invitation for the world to crush us, but it's actually how Jesus' character, Jesus' kingdom, breaks into the world through us. It's by following his example. And then even all of those things aside, here's what humility does for us. Here's what it does for you. Humility, following Jesus' example, gives you a freedom to live without having to match some standard that the world would lay on you. Gives you the freedom to step away from the world's tyrannical ways of judging you and condemning you. 
Humility doesn't have to be vindicated by success or accolades or the approval of others. It doesn't have to demand respect or attention. It doesn't have to weigh itself against others and what they're doing or what they demand from you. It doesn't have to tear others down so that it can exalt itself. Humility is content to be measured by God's scales, which means that it's content to follow a life that is worth living that's measured with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, gentleness, self-control. The much quieter things that the world doesn't know how to measure, but they're actually the soil of a life of flourishing. And here's probably the biggest thing for us that humility offers. At the end of the day, humility is not a tool that we use to make our world better or our families better or ourselves better even. Humility is the only way to live before God. He resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Or as James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's another way of saying that he gives us the gift of being able to share in Jesus' own exaltation by being joined to his humility. It's Jesus' humility that is the reason that we can draw near. His willingness to step off of his throne into our mess his obedience to the point of death, that's the reason that we can go before God unguarded, with our defenses down. It's not like we could impress him with our jobs or our wealth or our righteousness or our reputations anyway, but Jesus' humility is the reason that we don't even have to try. In Christ, in Christ we can receive forgiveness, a place in the kingdom, resurrection life, and as absurd as it sounds, even exaltation with Jesus. We can come like children without defenses before the Father who loves us because Jesus has already stepped down. So this week, my prayer for us is that we can not just see the example that Jesus has set, but also that we can rest in the fact that he has actually accomplished this for us. There is nothing that we have to build or take or defend for ourselves we can lay those things down. If we are joined to Jesus, then his humility and then his exaltation is given to us. And that's enough. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.